This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Sonny Banger, thanks very much for making it Talk Your Book debut. Really excited to, to sit down and speak to you today. Uh, it's going to be a different Talk Your Book episode today. I thought we'd start with Antipodes Partners and a little bit about your investing uh, philosophy. Yeah, we're a global um, equity manager. Uh, managing approximately uh, 8.5 billion US, uh, Australian dollars. Uh, we look outside of Australia, predominantly across all markets, all industries, uh, and our philosophy is what we ca- characterise as pragmatic value. Um, so we're looking, we're looking for companies that, yeah, do offer great value, but obviously we don't want to be dogmatic about that and just look for low price to earnings, price to books. We understand, appreciate industries, businesses go through structural change and disruption, and we don't want to be stuck on the wrong side of that. Uh, But we do care about what we pay for a business, as we do believe the value of a business is the sum of all of its future cash flows over time. Um, and that approach allows us to be quite flexible in which industries and businesses we look at. And um, we construct portfolios of about 45 to 65 stocks as a result. I'm the portfolio manager of the uh, Antipodes Asia Fund. And uh, in terms of geographic spread, whereabouts in Asia is the predominant uh, amount of your funds invested? Yeah, from our global fund point of view, it's, it's predominantly in North Asia, uh, China, South Korea and Taiwan. Um, there's a combination of um, interesting businesses that are very domestic in nature, but also quite big global businesses such as TSMC and Samsung. And then on the other side, we own Tencent, which is quite a domestically orientated business. Um, and our Asia fund is quite broad across Asia. We, we don't really, we kind of um, are pretty flexible in, in which parts of Asia we hunt. So we're going to get into a couple of stock specific ideas later, but having a, a, an Asian investment expert, if you like, in front of us, I was just keen to dig in, dig into a broader view of, of the investment landscape in Asia before we get into those stock-specific ideas. So to start with, the events a couple of weeks ago around Didi and the, the ruling that came out of China around that seemed like a, a bit of a step change for Chinese tech companies that are listed in the US. Could you maybe rehash for the viewers that, that aren't familiar with this story briefly what happened and, and whether or not you think there are long-lasting implications around Chinese tech companies listing overseas going forward? Yeah, I think um, there, there are a couple of things here. So firstly, we've, we've been um, undergoing a anti-monopoly sort of uh, uh, regulatory framework for the past nine months, six to nine months. Um, we, we can say it kind of started off with Alibaba last year um, and financial was scrutinized for certain reasons. Um, and that's sort of been in the works for a while. Um, regulation has come out, um, for example, um, you know, preventing platforms from picking one platform, um, you know, in terms of merchants and brands. And that's sort of, that, that's been in the works for, for a little while. Um, what has sort of now been sparked by the whole DD situation is, a, is, a, is, a, is cybersecurity. Um, the the regulation on cybersecurity came out last year. There were a few loopholes that Didi has probably taken advantage of. Uh, in, and one of them clearly was that um, they did not need the Chinese regulator's approval to list 
uh, on the U.S. stock market, and potentially could mean that you know does DD uh, would be would DD be uh, forced to give up some sensitive information about such Chinese citizens to a foreign government? Uh, these kind of loopholes are now being tightened up. Um, you know, what we've understood, um, and again, this is speculation or rumour, is that the regulator did ask Didi to delay the IPO, and some of the Chinese-based shareholders also encouraged Didi not to, to, to list and kind of go through the cybersecurity review. Um, you'd expect a company like Alibaba at Tencent, um, incredibly sensitive about this um, from the get-go, even though, you know, one's listed in Hong Kong and one is listed in the US and have kind of complied with with the with the rules. And Didi kind of was looking for an avenue to go public pretty quickly. Um, one thing we know uh, in the Chinese internet space, it's a very competitive space and firms are often looking to raise capital uh, in order to compete and move into new industry verticals. And Didi probably took an opportunity to do so probably at the displeasure of the regulator. Um, so now the regulator is obviously going to make an example at a Didi, like they made an example out of Alibaba last year on the, on the anti-monopoly side. Uh, Didi will be the poster child on the cybersecurity side. And I think it opens up a bigger, a larger question here, Chris, which is, uh, you know, the Chinese government is very sensitive about information going to a foreign government, as foreign governments are sensitive about uh, China. This mm. economic decoupling... Uh, of the West and China is here to stay. And I think Didi just highlights another example of that, that we've been, you know, us, uh, um, investors like us have been sort of used to now sort of thinking about over the past few years. Um, I think also to, you know, to your point about listing in Hong Kong, I think the government will be much more comfortable in Chinese firms listing mm -hmm. in Hong Kong. And then obviously the question will become what is national um, national uh secure you know from a security point of view um the government has to make sure the interests are protected not every company is going to need to go through those regulatory hurdles uh, the regulatory hurdles are going to be incredibly high if you list on the nasdaq and probably lower if you list on the hong kong exchange do you think any of the major chinese tech firms that are currently listed in the states could you see them delisting and move to hong kong or you don't think it's been that big an event where, where that'll take place in the near future yeah, we, we've already seen um, movement of, you know, we've seen Alibaba come to Hong Kong and we've seen more and more uh, US, uh, sorry, I should say Chinese listed, US listed uh, technology companies move back to, to Hong Kong. I think that trend is still very much intact um, and that's going to continue to happen over time. Um, but I think, yeah, I, 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 I do feel that over time, um, the Chinese government, I don't think, will try to uh, disband the VIE structure in a rush. I don't think that will be very productive or helpful for a lot of companies that are listed in the US. But I think the message is, message is absolutely clear uh, that there's going to be a push towards uh, moving uh, your listing to Hong Kong and then eventually moving your listing to onshore China uh, onto the Shanghai composite. But I think that's much more down, down the road. The other thing I wanted to touch on was the Chinese bond market. We've seen 10-year yields on Chinese government bonds at just under 3%, which is obviously a lot higher than we're seeing in the US. And it sounds like uh, a number of institutions are, are moving their bond investments that way. Do you think that's going to be a, a growing trend or do you think there'll be 
you know, considering the Cold War that the US and China are currently experiencing, there's going to be a limited number of uh, institutional-grade investors that want to take up that rate differential. Yeah, it's interesting, Chris. It's definitely a political Cold War. Um, from an economic and trade point of view, uh, I'll have to say and admit that there's, there is no Cold War. Uh, mm. The US economy is as dependent on China as China is on the US, um, you know, the pandemic, you know, US imports from China skyrocketed much to, you know, Mr. Trump's displeasure. Uh, economically, we're still very, very linked. Now, I do believe that the decoupling will happen. The Chinese economy will become more insular. Uh, there's an enormous rise of uh, wealthy Chinese households in China. So we, we're going from at 25 million households in China that earn above 80,000 US dollars per annum to 100 million households by the end of this decade. So that household will in itself, that 100 million households will represent a $9 trillion economy. And so the economic decoupling is going to happen. The, the, um, the, the move in the bond market, I think for the moment, global investors um, you know, US is still the key market. It's the most deepest and liquid market in the world. Yeah, China is quickly coming up the ranks in terms of rivaling that uh, and obviously potentially displacing a lot of European sovereign bond markets. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, there's li very little government interference in the Chinese uh, bond market versus in the Japanese or European uh, and to some extent into the U.S. bond market where private investors are crowded out um, from, from, from those individual bond markets and it's sort of making, it's forcing uh, in global bond investors to look for other alternatives, a deep, liquid, stable bond market with a stable exchange rate and the Chinese bond market is proving to be a very uh, suitable alternative. The other thing is that China is experimenting with their digital currency. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether they push the digital currency down the trade avenue, as in, do they, you know, if you're a big trading partner with China, let's say South America, and you want to settle that in yuan, potentially you can do it through the digital yuan avenue. Now, as you start trading more and more with China, you start holding more and more Chinese yuan in your reserves, you, you naturally start buying more Chinese assets, particularly government bonds. I think this is going to inevitably happen because China is an enormous trading partner with the, with the majority of the world. Um, so, look, I think the, uh, there is obviously a political Cold War. Um, economically, do think um, we will keep decoupling, which means we'll try to find domestic avenues of growth. But capital markets still feel very much uh, intertwined. It feels uh, at the moment quite hard to break away from that from that linkage without causing enormous economic disruption. And what are the major trends in China that you're looking at at the minute that are, are most interesting to you? Uh, look, I think one of the most interesting trends is definitely the rise of the premium consumer. Uh, we talk a lot about the middle income of Asia and emerging markets, and that's very true. But I think China has gone past that. And China is effectively moving into what we call um, the higher middle income uh, economy class, which is you know, something we think about with South Korea and Taiwan. So if you look at the development of China over the past 20 years, it's following a very similar path to South Korea. Now, what happens is around that 10,000, 12,000 US dollars per income, a lot of emerging markets get, get stuck there. 
and they struggled to go from 10, 12,000 to 20. And it looks like China is making the leap. How are they doing that? Embracing technology, embracing infrastructure investment, productive economy. And as a result, the growth um, from, from 10, 12 to 20 is now being driven by this very wealthier cohort uh, of people which are uh, moving into this premium consumption. And these people will buy luxury goods. And we think a lot about that from an LVMH point of view or a caring point of view, but we don't appreciate that this is going to drive a lot of purchases of high-end luxury cars in China, not just Teslas, but potentially locally domestic brands. It's going to um, create an enormous boom in outbound travel. So approximately 100 million Chinese um, leave China each year to travel. Half of them are still going to Macau and Hong Kong and Taiwan and 50 are going to other parts of the world. So we think that will be a big um, booming part uh, of, of, of the economy. And then the services side, you know, private banking and financial uh, 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 planning and all these industries are really early on in their growth in China. As people get wealthier, they look to buy insurance, they look to, 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 to invest their assets. Uh, and, and, you know, the growth in uh, the services economy will Will, grow, will take off. I think this is one of the most uh, exciting trends in, in China. And, then, and as you become wealthier as a country, you think about your, your environment, you think about uh, quality of life. And that's the other really interesting thing that's happening in China is that the Chinese government is pushing an incredibly powerful green agenda. Uh, China wants to push aggressively down the renewable path. And so the other big trend occurring in China, and we'll talk about it more today, is the uh, growth of the renewable sector, which will be a very strong structural growth trend over the coming coming years. And so that's linked with electric vehicles too, isn't it? Chinese government has put mandates on uh, electric vehicles and the percentage they want to, uh, you know, vehicles to be purchased that are electric, uh, which is going to have huge flow on implications to, to baseload power and, and that coming from renewable sources maybe talk to me start with the ev thematic just how big is it and what, what are the mandates that the government are putting around ev purchases going forward yeah now when it comes to things uh in china you always have to think about it's a it's just a big market for anything and so the first point it's a big car market <laughs> you've got 24 million cars being sold in china each year uh, so it is a large market and that's growing as the penetration of cars continues to grow in, in, in the population. And the government has mandated that 20% of all car sales to be uh, electric vehicles by 2025. Um, so, you know, based, based off that alone, you, you're talking about, you know, let's call it five to six million cars being electric. So in itself, the Chinese EV sales market will be one of the biggest car markets in the world. What has happened in the background as the government has put these targets forward, it has also fostered enormous uh, uh, innovation and pushed the whole supply chain of electric vehicles to be built out in China. Um, you know, basically, the only thing China needs to do is source the raw materials um, from, you know, countries around the world that are exporters of commodities, but the chemicals and the production, uh, capital equipment and final EV um, um, is made in China. And so over time, there's been enormous investment uh, in, in the back end of, of EVs. So you've come to a point where the cost of a premium EV, like a high-end luxury EV, 
is below an ice vehicle. And so what we're seeing is that the high-end consumer is happily buying electrical, electric vehicles um, rather than buying high-end ice vehicles. That's already happening in China. Now, the next part of that will be when that moves to the mass market. There are some mass market brands that are at the same price point. And as battery costs uh, come down over time, um, that will probably move more into the favor of electric vehicles and then push more of the consumers towards EVs. And so we think that target of 20% by 2025 probably will get achieved in 2023. Um, we can kind of look at today that um, 10 to about... 15% of all car sales are EVs in China. So it's already going on the right path. And then again, on the back end, China's government is investing in the uh, charging infrastructure, charging stations with, you know, on highways, on, um, on, uh, in, in residential areas, so that people can sort of continue on that trend. So it is quite, it is quite interesting. We're trying to think, we kind of think China's leading the world in terms of EV adoption. Europe's probably a close second. And then we'd say the US would probably come, come faster over the next couple of years as more, potentially more subsidies come out of the US as well. And there's not a huge net gain to EVs if the, the baseload power charging those EVs is coming from, from coal. They're also moving heavily into renewables, uranium as well, but renewables to increase their baseload power and the cleanness of that. Uh, which renewables do you think are likely to win most out of that transition? Yeah, absolutely. Look, what's really interesting and, and two big points here is the, the Chinese power market is still a growing market. It grows each year as um, more people are um, consuming uh, goods, moving into the middle class, and even into that premium class. So the growth of the Chinese power market per annum is basically this, is, is, it's like a Texas each year. China's is con incrementally consuming a Texas or uh, you know, Netherlands plus Britain uh, in terms of size. So there's more growth. And what's really also interesting is over the past decade, the cost of renewables, let's say solar, have been falling very predictably at about 10, 15% per annum as uh, improvements in technology scale have been happening. Now, solar has not been competitive to coal over the past decade. And so you've had a boom bust cycle over time, particularly when the government gives subsidies, then the government takes subsidies. You've had this stop start industry. In 2020, um, and, 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 and you know, just, just through that um, falling cost of solar through time, the costs have now hit and have now gone below the cost of thermal coal. So there's been a huge shift in China as a result, huge shift in the capital markets view of all of this now. The Chinese government wants to push for renewables, primarily solar, um, over the coming decade because the cost of in implementing a new solar power plant is cheaper than doing coal. Also, um, China doesn't have to then rely on foreign countries for coal imports. Um, the sun is free. But also what it does is if you can start to implement more of your baseload power through renewables um, and that source of energy is free, uh, it can actually unlock enormous productivity opportunities for your economy over the coming decade. Um, so we think today China's got about 200 gigawatts 
of solar installations, 220 gigawatts, which has happened pretty much through that boom bust. Now that we've kind of gone into this um, period where the unit economics are more favorable for solar, we think that could prob probably increase by four or five X over the coming decade. So you've got a solar industry that can grow at about a 17% CAGR over the coming decade. So it's, it's, it's trans, trans, um, forming from a cyclical boom bust into a structural growth industry. Um, and what's happened in the background is China's built out some of the most, uh, some of the largest solar um, makers, wafer makers in the world as well. So it's, it's actually in a good spot to build out its own industry, given it's got all the local localized manufacturing for solar. And what's, what company are you, uh, you investing in to play the, the solar thematic? So we quite like a company called uh, Longi Green Energy. Um, they've been, um, this company was formed by a husband and wife that were chemical engineers, um, you know, at university, they post-university, they sort of formed this company and had gone down this path to go, you know, to go into the gr green solar space. And, uh, you know, over time, they've sort of, you know, been part of that boom bust solar industry talked about, but they've, they've consistently just been doing an incredible amount of R&D over time. And what they've done is effectively been able to just lower the cost of solar wafers, wafers over time to become the lowest cost producer, not just in China, but globally. And over the past sort of five, six years, they've been able to take enormous market share to the point where they're about 60% of the Chinese solar market in terms of solar modules and, and wafers, and about 30 to 40% globally. So it is an enormously large company with huge scale. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a $60 billion company. Um, you know, we think this is in the box seat as the lowest cost producer of solar modules and wafers to really ride the boom of the solar build out in China, uh, as, the, you know, as we talked about with the cost of solar being below thermal coal. But that cost of solar being below thermal coal is not just a Chinese phenomenon, it's also a Southeast Asian phenomenon. So think Vietnam, think India, um, Indonesia. And we just think over the next year, you know, a few years, a lot of these countries will also embark on big solar booms and long years were positioned to export into those markets. So it's a very Asian Chinese domestic play um, to capture the big boom that will happen in, in solar in, in Asia over the coming decade. And what sort of earnings multiple is it trade on? Yeah, so this is a business trading on about 25 times next year's earnings. Uh, and we you know, think these earnings are very durable and sustainable um, going forward. It does a uh, about a twenty five percent return on capital, uh, and and so we think you know on those on those sort of returns, um, growing at you know high teens, we think they'll actually grow in, in the low twenties. They'll still take more market share given their cost advantage. Uh, we think this business has all that all the hallmarks for for uh, for being able to compound those earnings growth on high returns on capital. Uh, so we do think we're buying uh, quite an interesting company that's got this uh, long tail of growth. And you're not just focused on China, you're also interested in, in Southeast Asia and, and the investment landscape there. Maybe talk me through an outline of some of the things you're looking at in, in Southeast Asia from a, a broad macro view before we get into your stock specific idea there. Yeah, and look, you know, emerging markets has, have really evolved over the past 10 to 15 years. You know, in some instances, they're behind in some trends and in some other instances, they're ahead in what we've learned with China, they're ahead in... Uh, e-commerce, uh, fintech, um, uh, potentially now in solar, renewables, EVs. 
Um, but there is this huge opportunity in the rest of emerging markets, um, such as Southeast Asia, where you've got um, a one trillion US dollar retail sales market, and only eight percent of it has moved online. Um, a similar phenomenon in in Latin America, we've got about a one trillion dollar uh, retail sales market, and again, ten percent has only moved online. Now, in comparison, you know, we think about the US, which is about twenty twenty five percent, and China which is more 30, 35%. So, you know, this is really exciting for us, Southeast Asia, where you've got 800 million people that are, that are now consuming things online that, you know, most Western markets and China take more for granted. And what company are you, are you investing in to express that, that so, uh, investment thematic? So we like this company called Sea Limited. Um, their origins um, are, are from Singapore. Um, they've kind of, they've been, focused on, um, you know, gaming and game publishing in the Southeast Asian region. They have a partnership with Tencent, um, which, which allows them, which gets them access to some Tencent's uh, IP in gaming. And they've kind of then looked to sort of, um, you know, benefit from the rise of mobile gaming in these, in these Southeast Asian economies. Now, a lot of people in Southeast Asia are basically going straight to hand, handset. They're sort of bypassing the migration to desktop or laptop. And so everything is done on your handset, you know, and, and gaming being one of them. But then obviously it translates to more other things as well, such as uh, payments, e-commerce, uh, and all these other opportunities, um, on-demand logistics. So C um, kind of thought about this opportunity a few years ago and, and started investing in e-commerce in Southeast Asia, you know, first in Singapore, Taiwan, but then moving broadly across Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, and has now cemented itself as the clear number one in the position. Now they had to go through a bit of a battle with Lazada, which was the Alibaba's Southeast Asian e-commerce. But I think what's really interesting is when you're, uh, when you're operating in these markets, you need to have localized expertise. Uh, C has sort of deployed a great, done a great job um, in terms of understanding the local nuances market to market. Uh, I guess Lazada was sort of piggybacking of Alibaba uh, and then using a lot of the Chinese sort of understanding in Southeast Asia, which actually didn't um, end up working out for Lazada. Uh, and now we're in a situation where C is dominating e-commerce, but now moving into fintech, um, there's approximately 300 to 350 million unbanked people in Southeast Asia. And so the banking experience for a lot of these people is quite poor, uh, either through lack of access, lack, lack of branch access, uh, lack of uh, financial inclusion. Uh, and so FinTech is, you know, buy now, pay later, which is a concept we've sort of very familiar with in, in Australia now through Afterpay, is just something that happens in Southeast Asia because it is... Uh, very early, and it's a great way to start including people into the financial economy. Now, what gives C a huge competitive advantage is that they've got the dominant e-commerce platform, and then they use their fintech or payments uh, uh, infrastructure to facilitate that e-commerce trend. And so people get educated on fintech through the C e-commerce platform, and then can take that into their offline world when they want to go out and buy something at a shop or buy at a store. Um, they can take, um, you know, they basically see wallet, e-wallet to the offline world as well. And so we think the fintech opportunity in, in C is as big as the e-commerce opportunity um, that they're currently tackling as well.
I'm interested in that unbanked phenomenon, which is quite common in other parts of the world. There's a, a small number of people in Australia who are obviously unbanked or underbanked. But as banking gets disrupted, does that go from being a country's weakness to potentially becoming a strength as you don't have a legacy banking system that's got to go through this, these costly changes almost not overnight, but in a small period of time, a, a country can go from being a long way behind to actually further in front because yeah. they can jump straight on a new technology that, that fintech is opening up that countries like Australia may be slower to adopt. Yeah, it's an interesting question, Chris. I think, um, you know, we should think about China in this context um, because you can sort of argue similar dynamic happened that the Chinese banking system, uh, very SOE, state-owned enterprise-driven, was always focusing on serving corporates. And so retail Chinese consumers kind of got left out. And then Alipay and Tenpay came along and sort of filled the gap that the banking system in China sort of missed out on and wasn't focused on. Um, now, what has it done? Uh, you know, if you think about, let's just talk about Alipay because they're the, they're the largest payment network in China. They can process transactions 10x the quantity that Visa can process uh, at the moment, right? Mm. Uh, at a tenth of the cost. So what it has done, it is actually really lowered the cost. It's made it incredibly frictionless. It's reduced costs in the system, which is effectively passed on to the end consumer, improved productivity of the entire system. Um, and you're now at a point where you've got a huge advantage uh, and your uh, consumer is very digitally savvy. They, they become used to your uh, app, uh, not just being a payment app, but actually becoming a, a kind of a financial supermarket. It's the place I go to do all my financial needs, you know, whether it comes banking, insurance, buying and selling stocks. Uh, it's all sitting in one little neatly tied up app. And now C kind of has seen this in China. And obviously, they've got a very strong partnership with Tencent as Tencent's a shareholder. They kind of think about the same opportunity emerging in Southeast Asia and that they're, that they're in a great position to be the super app, the super financial app uh, for, for the region. And again, I think from a government point of view, it's, it's, it's really positive. Uh, you know, to include uh, people who are sort of sort of cut out from from the financial economy, it it, it brings them into the system. It also does incredible things for productivity uh, and and long term economic growth. So I think the governments of, of these regions are quite positive in encouraging people to use uh, digital wallets to kind of bring themselves into the financial economy. And what sort of top line revenue growth can you see C Limited having? over the next few years? Yeah, look, I think from, for, for the moment, you know, you know, e-commerce itself, we think will grow in, in, the, in the 20s. You know, we're talking about 10% penetration to going up to maybe 25 over the coming five to six years. Um, the gaming business is doing quite well as um, they've seemed to have, have, have found a few hit games. And then, and then FinTech is just an ongoing big opportunity. We know there's a lot of market cap in banks in, in, in the region. So, you know, for example, the in, average Indonesian bank will earn about um, 30 to $40 US dollars per customer. So if C can even take half of that and earn $15, $20 per customer, we think that's enormous upside from currently zero. Um, you know, as they as they're moving into the into the fintech arena, and you know, and then the fintech profits are more lucrative in Singapore and Taiwan, where it's closer to like 
two three hundred dollars dollars per customer. Uh, so it's so it's um, you know I think a, a story where we can see probably you know low twenties um, revenue growth over the coming years. And it must be a huge addressable market. How long do you think it could could see those top line growth numbers before it would start to peter off? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, from our observations in China, it took uh, e-commerce to get to about 35%. It took took 15 years. Um, Now, of course, there was elements of uh, building the infrastructure. There were elements of just customer awareness. Those things are going to be a lot faster now. People are much more inclined to buy things online. The other thing is that uh, the shopping experience in some of these Southeast Asian countries is really poor. So over typically crowded malls and uh, very busy to get into the malls and uh, a lot of traffic on, on the domestic road. So the experience online will probably speed up that. And secondly, C is investing heavily in logistics to get you know goods delivered to individuals next day. Uh, and that, that speed up is probably going to mean instead of taking 15 years, probably takes five to seven years. Um, now, what we think is that whilst they're doing that in e-commerce, the big opportunity, again, is the building a, 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 a super app like we see in China. We haven't really seen a super app in the Western markets, but, you know, I think in Asian countries, there's more of an, a, a, uh, there's more, not just awareness, but also willingness to use a super app to sort of manage your you know your life affairs and that's so that's a, wechat when you refer to the super app in china is that yeah the, that's that's wechat that's right you know where you basically you know run your life inside of wechat now wechat's so dominant and powerful that you know teams meetings or zoom meetings happen within wechat corporates have mm. their entire network sitting in wechat communicating to their customers to their employees um, so these are the kind of opportunities, if you really get your super app right, you can bring the entire ecosystem inside that app. And that just keeps opening up more and more opportunities. And I think that's what's really exciting about C, that we, we're just really early in that, in that growth of that opportunity. That's great. Well, uh, there's some, it's a couple of really interesting companies to look at. I, it, it's, it's days like these, Sunny, when I wish I was invested in more high-quality companies in, instead of the crap that's in my portfolio. But uh, <laughs> I look forward to following them from the sidelines and, and love to have you back on for a chat sometime in the future. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks very much. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.